0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Leicester Square Theatre. Please welcome a man who once presented Top of the Pops and is now doing this. It is Richard Herring! Oh man, hello, my finest friends! Hello, oh, oh! Hooray! It's the last show in the Leicester Square Theatre! They're probably not of the series. because we'll do some more. It's never ends. When does the new series begin? When there's no weeks off. <laughs> uh, welcome to Richard Harris Leicester Square Theatre Podcast. I was talking to uh, Adrian Childs uh, the other day. I was around. And <laughs> his house, just weeing. We were weeing up a storm. <laughs> he calls it... <laughs> I'm the most, the most impressive, like a lot of people, this is very topical to the, the week of recording, but... um. Look, lot, Adrian is a very great, he was a great guest on this podcast. and If you heard heard it, he was fantastic. Uh, and he's a very interesting man. Uh, a lot of people have been slagging him off about having Eurion in his house, which is ridiculous, but that's... Uh, but it's a a because he's a Guardian columnist, and he wrote a column about it, and that's why people are annoyed about it. And also, he's dating the... And he's going to marry the editor of The Guardian. And so people are saying, well, he's just got that column, because it's... His wife's. No, he got the column first. And what really impresses me about Adrian Charles is that presumably the editor of The must have, Guardian must have come round to his house the first time she came round, seen a urinal in his bathroom, and thought, I'm still going to go out with him. That is, I'm the editor of The Guardian. And I'm going to marry a bloke with a urinal. That is, that's the strength of Adrian Charles. His personality, even that. new mo. If you went round to someone's house and you had a urinal in his bathroom, you'd just. I'm, I'm going home now. And she went. No, I'm, it's enough. That Adrian Charles. Fantastic stuff. Uh, I would like to thank everyone who contrib- contributed to the, uh, the Kickstarter campaign that allowed us to live stream this show. It's been an absolute failure, and we're never doing it again. But thank you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Thank you for helping us not lose loads of money doing it. So thank you. It yeah, at least covered itself. So thank you very much. I don't think we will do it again, but you never know. Uh, th- hello to all the people around the world who are watching this. All over the world, 25 people are watching this. They're, they're dashing around, dashing around. Um, I wish there was another lockdown, don't you? It was good in the lockdown, wasn't it? It was good in the lockdown. Do you remember what it was like in the lockdown? People would watch you do puppet shows. He would watch you play snooker against yourself and they would love, they'd be grateful. <laughs> now there's proper entertainment. Oh no, we're too good for you, Rich. <laughs> too, too, too good for you. Um, uh, my guest this week, I can't believe, has not been on this podcast before. It's very exciting to have him here. You know him, and uh, what he's best known for is playing Phil in the film Dog Eat Dog. That is why we... are. Uh, that's why we're all here tonight. Will you please welcome the amazing Alan Davies, ladies and gentlemen? Phil. Welcome. Sit down. Sit yourself down. Hello. Thank you very much. Lovely to see you, Alan. Thank you for coming along. Thank you for having Um, me. No, my absolute pleasure. Uh, Do you remember playing Phil in uh, the film Dog Eat (laughs) Dog? Yes, I do remember. Let's talk about that for an hour. (laughs) Playing Phil.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was good fun. That was straight to video. (laughs) Uh, No, he was a drug dealer. Right. And so what I did was I went... that writing like that. That's really all I can manage to do. <laughs> and it was uh, co-written by a guy called Mark Tonderei, who's came a good friend of mine, and is now f- directing stuff in America. He's done mm-hmm. really well. Uh, and it had various guest stars, in it, including Ricky Gervais. Yeah, there's and, uh, an amazing cast in there. <laughs> Daniel Kitson as a bus driver and stuff like that. But I remember we, uh, Gary Kemp was in it, and uh, he played a ruthless gang lord, and. Uh, one day Mark phoned him up and he answered the phone and he goes, It is I, Gary Kemp. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> and then <laughs> and then he said, I don't normally answer the phone, but I had a good feeling about this call." <laughs> and it's quite eccentric, you know, but it's Gary Kemp, It's a massive pop star and there he is. So I had quite a laugh with him. But every time I've spoken to Mark for 20 years since, whenever we phone one another up, we always go, It is I. I mean, <laughs>
0: <laughs> it sounds like it's the first time he ever answered the phone. You know, He'd never seen anyone do it. <laughs> I, mean, I guess you know, it's, just, all, it's
2: Warmington 393. <laughs> and then over years, it came, It is I. <laughs> I mean, I feel like he meant to say something else <laughs> and it came out wrong, and, you know. Perhaps he was in the middle of something and he meant to say, it's me. And then he thought, oh, perhaps that's, perhaps that's not posh. That's grammatically wrong. you was supposed to say, it is I. But of course, you're not. You're supposed to say, hello. <laughs> uh, can I help you? Who's calling, please? Or, you know, anything will do. Yeah. But it is I was a fucking disaster. And, and it's... And it's funnier, though, if you really go for it, if you really go, it is I it really does. It will make your friends laugh and laugh and laugh and laugh and laugh and laugh and laugh, and laugh, and
0: I, laugh, think and laugh. I think, it, I
2: think it is. Every time I see a band down ballet in you know, an 80s pop shows. <laughs> and they go, work till you're muscle-bound and doing all that. And someone, I got to know Tony Hadley a bit because we used to do stuff for the same charity. Yeah. And then he's a lovely, lovely bloke, and he's always doing gold. But I can't... And the, he, was, he fell out with Gary Kemp so badly, no, sued really. him three times. Oh, like, un- unsuccessful. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, people kept saying, Tone, for fuck's sake! <laughs> he wrote the fucking songs! <laughs> it's been proven in court twice. Why are you suing him again? Because I said, it was the way I did, Gold. Oh, Tone, Tone.
0: <laughs>
2: but he was never pretentious. No. He would never go, it is I, Tony. Tone. <laughs> And I did a charity show with him once, and his son is older now. His son was about 12 at the time. And Tony went backstage and came out in some leather trousers to do his set. And his son goes, Nice strides, Dad. <laughs> I really undermined him. <laughs> and I didn't have children at the time, but I remember, I remember seeing that, and thinking, Jesus, children can really just cut no, you to nice. the quick, can't they? <laughs> I mean, this guy was a world superstar. <laughs> and his 12-year-old floored him. And he kept looking in the mirror at his trousers. What's wrong with these? What's wrong with these? I
1: said,
0: pay no attention, Tony. You look great. You look great. (laughs) My daughter, who's seven, and I didn't think this would happen when she was seven, has started sarcastically calling me Richard all all the time. And she does it, like, properly. Hello, Richard. She, like, knows it's a ridiculous name. And and calls me by my first name sarcastically. And it's absolutely crushing. My kids... My
2: kids now, I can't... I shout at them too much. And I I do use them in my act. I mean, I do exploit them in my... I say... I don't know if it's really exploiting them, because, of course, I am buying all of their food and clothes. I mean, I sort of regard it as earning their keep... (laughs) <laughs> their, their mum, my wife <laughs> I'm talking to clarify that went away for a few days because her mum was having an operation so she went off to stay with her mum for a few days so I'm there with the kids and I got increasingly irate each morning because every fucking day it's the same where are your shoes? well why is one here? I don't know where the other one is I can't find my shoe they say and then they just piss off and play with Lego for an hour and they I guess, where's your book bag? and why have eat your breakfast! why don't you do anything I say? And then I said to him, I said to him one time, okay, that's it, now I have to go and get ready. I'm going upstairs, and when I come down, what am I going to say? And the five-year-old goes, get fucking ready! <laughs> <laughs> and, then he, and then he absolutely pissed himself laughing. <laughs> and I laughed, you're not supposed to laugh. Ready. <laughs> and that is the, that is, i promise you if you come to see me do a stand up set which is infrequent these days that is the biggest laugh in the show <laughs>
0: <laughs> Jeez, i swear in front of the kids all the time you, is that i can't not
2: not i yeah. thought i shouldn't for a while and then i fuck say i going to don't swear <laughs> daddy oh well just you know, honestly i mean i've called them every word on the c word yeah you know I'm disappointed in myself,
0: time and time again. Yeah, but you know, I'm shit at it. I can't help. <laughs> it's sort of back. They, they they become obsessed with the with the word fuck now. Both both kids, but I've managed to with them not to say. It, but my but my every now and again, they go, Are "We allowed to say the fuc." They think it's like fuc, and you know, so it's like it's out of the out of a seven year old's mouth. It's Mark pretty. Said to me,
2: kind of <laughs> he goes, "Can I say?" For goodness sake. <laughs> yeah. And we said Yeah, you can say that. He goes, Can I say fuck goodness sake <laughs> <laughs> And we go, and you have to say no, I don't think so. <laughs> and he goes, Oh I can't say anything. <laughs>
0: It's a, fun time, it's a fun time when you're trying to work out what's rude and, and what's not rude, and you get it wrong. It's, it's like, well, oh, you said bloomin' heck, bloomin' heck. Can you say bloomin' heck? <laughs> yeah, oh, fudge, and feck and whatever. Anyway. What do you think about Adrian Charles' uh, Uriah in the house? <laughs> would you...? I have never in my life wanted
2: my own Uriah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, I, having said that, I've encountered a lot of complaining in my life yeah. from people about the male aim, you yes. know and i have had friends round watching the football or something or have to socialising that and the male aim has been appalling at times in my own toilet so yes. I do sympathise
0: but is that better in a urinal than a toilet's bigger than a urinal there's yeah, more but a you're chance kind of getting of think in
2: you closer to you're it getting in there uh, yeah and I wouldn't have a standard urinal
0: I'd have a, a bespoke <laughs> <laughs> would you go for the full wall <laughs> length down to the floor well, or, imagine, or the little
2: I imagine a urinal with a kind of a, a seat coming forwards, so you're facing but you're still <laughs> sitting and, uh, and you're leaning back yeah and then maybe they're moving targets like in an old fashioned <laughs> arcade well obviously is an opportunity to turn it into something yeah. you know with a high score
0: yeah I think there's not, you know. I think the urinal, whoever's in charge of urinals, they haven't got it right yet. There's always piss everywhere, and it's, you know. Yeah, there is. I had a friend
2: when I was at school called Danny. He was my my best friend. He now lives in, in emigrated very sadly for me. He emigrated to Australia in 1991. Sadly for him, he's a Manchester United supporter, and, and the following year they started winning every single thing. <laughs> but we used to call him the squirt because there was in the pub we used to go in, there were high up windows above the urinals, and yeah. he was the only person who could we out of those. <laughs> windows, and I'm talking eight, seven or eight feet up.
0: That is good.
2: So I mean, it's, you know, Adrian's actually I think been a bit tame with the bog standard <laughs> bog standard well, bog.
0: That does, that does, I remember the days when, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a the trajectory through life as well of the urine is, is a very sad thing because yeah. now it just falls out of my penis basically. I mean, the urinal now is really just holding a pipe pot. <laughs> But I used to be able to shoot. There used to be a wall in our urinals right, at primary school, and you had to wee over the wall. you? Well, that was the. And, were, you know, and people were passing on the other side. So I mean, also there comes a point in life when you're bothered
2: about a splashback. Yeah. I and mean, I think up to a certain age, you just aren't bothered at all <laughs> with how much piss is all over you and everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> oh, disgusting. It's yeah, true. <laughs> Do you have
0: anything? Do you have anything in your own house that, if someone was to come in and go, you, have you heard Alan Davies has a urinal in his bathroom? With him, is there anything that you well, think like is some unusual people?
2: Some people think it's pretentious that I have a B day. Yeah, they think that's uh, yeah, like that. <laughs> I mean, that's exactly the sort of noise that an English person will make at the idea of someone having a clean asshole. That's what's really. <laughs> the rest of the world is thinking, "How do you clean your ass with handfuls of <laughs> tissue?" <laughs> Well, that's disgusting. <laughs> don't you then get shitty clumps of tissue? Yeah, every day. Like, what do you do with that? You put it down the loo. Well, the fuck, don't you wash your ass, you <laughs>
0: disgusting piece.
2: But here we're like, ooh, get you, clean asshole. Ooh, weirdo. I use the inside
0: of my pants. <laughs> <laughs> It's quite my parents had a B day in the in the nineteen eighties, I would say. Did they really? That's... Yeah, and then it, but then they don't have a B day anymore. Was it a coloured one, like an orange? Yeah, it yeah. was it was ap- avocado, I think. avocado, I think. It was probably avocado. <laughs> <laughs> that was sweet. I mainly used it to wank in, I think, to the you time. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I mean I've used everything to wank in, but it was you could shoot water, you know. I think it's fair to say there is nowhere. <laughs>
2: There is no place or situation that you could come up with where someone hasn't had a (laughs) pen. That's how much of an epidemic we're talking about in male behaviour.
1: Yeah, yeah, let's
2: let's, let's move on. Good. (laughs) Right. Or perhaps perhaps this podcast is the last remaining.
0: I don't think, anyone, I don't think anyone's done it on well, stage. There may be somewhere out there in the dark. I don't, I, I'm pretty certain someone will have wanked out there in the audience. But not so far, not on stage. As not with far this guest, but some of the others are better. Some people find it very sexy. There's definitely people at home masturbating. To, the minute we start talking about wanking, like, oh. take it as a cue. Yeah. It reminds you, look, you can sometimes forget. Oh! It could be, oh, could be out a in a couple away. of days, actually. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Well, let's, 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 I don't, you know, there's so much to talk to you about. Did you see this week or the last, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Mark Lamar, I think, tweeted a, a set, uh, like the list of the acts that yes, were in. Yes, uh, I did was, see that. Was it the Mercado Club? Yeah. In 1991, it was a several weeks of of bills with lots of
2: names. Of course, you and I recognise pretty much all of them. Yeah. What I like most, about it was it was handwritten in biro on a piece of paper, and there was quite a few. And I imagine Mark doing this, but that didn't turn up. <laughs> 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 <So> noted. <laughs> but also there was tipex used.
0: Yes. I love that at the bottom. He's tipex something out. <laughs> keep well, it It says knit. it says uh, Izard Eddie, and then there's arrows pointing the other side. So he didn't, <laughs> they, they thought. Eddie Izzard was called Izzard Eddie, and then then that's the point we're talking
2: about in in this. I did a radio show, and I know that you also did the same show for for Radio One Mm -hmm. when they were bought in from BBC Light Entertainment blocks of comedy hours. And so you'd have to play some music. We didn't know what music to play, we're all very out of touch. And Oasis had just started up. Started up, you know. And their first single was called Supersonic. And I'm, I'm announcing, and all I had on my script was o- Oasis Supersonic. And I'm, so, I'm going, is this Supersonic by Oasis? <laughs> or is it Oasis by Supersonic? And, and I'm looking through the glass, and they're all going, don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and I had to back announce the track. And, you, know, as you know, it's a brilliant track. To back announce the track. And I went, Oasis
0: Supersonic. Anyway, and just did it, left it. <laughs> styled it
2: out proud of myself
0: well talking of Oasis you've angered uh, Liam Gallagher recently can I read you the tweet that he well please do I don't (laughs) there's a lot that I love about this Alan Davis you need to fuck off to another country, and that is asterisk, so I'm presuming you spell it I think he's Wrongly spelt wrongly spelled the word country. Uh, one where they don't got a sense of humour, you'll fit right in, you unfunny spunk bubble. <laughs> MCFCLG kiss. And uh, the kiss <laughs> yeah. is my favourite. <laughs> how, how did you anger Liam Gallagher so bad? It's a football
2: related. Well, it was about football, yeah, because I've done a podcast now. For about, hello, oh, three listeners, we've accumulated <laughs> a huge following called the Tuesday Club. And we've been doing it for about 13 years. And we occasionally rant about, you know, the opposition. Yeah. And in a very, in a very biased and irrational way. And that's uh, good fun for us. But since the advent of social media, things can get taken a little bit out of context <laughs> and can go somewhat viral and end, end up in the papers. And I I was on a rant about Manchester City and all the money they've had from Abu Dhabi and now it isn't fair and they've spent a billion pounds. and blah, blah, blah. And uh, they played at our ground. I'm an Arsenal fan, for everyone who doesn't understand. They played at our ground and won in the last minute and we felt very hard done by by numerous refereeing calls, recorded the next day and, as is traditional, lost the plot with fury over it. (laughs) And it turns out... That they're really touchy about this subject, <laughs> the City fans. United yeah. fans aren't bothered, Chelsea fans just take the pith out of you, you know. <laughs> City fans are really touchy about it, because they know they never would have won anything without all that money. So. And then he's, and he said that, and, uh, and then about a few days later, he lives near me. <laughs> he lives near me in Hampstead. I've seen him in Wagamama's. <laughs>
0: Is it a special mummers <laughs> with cloth serviettes and stuff in? Here? No, you, you don't have sitting, to sit. He was
2: <laughs> sitting with his ex-partner, right? And uh, didn't they look like they were enjoying the miso soup? They were sitting side by side, facing straight out into the restaurant, <laughs> as if to intimidate all the other diners. And quite successfully, he looks absolutely furiously angry. And I, was, and I was walking my daughter to school. We go across Hampstead Heath to walk her to school, and uh, we'd played Liverpool the night before and lost. And I, and I saw this guy, and he was wearing... He had a big hoodie on and a hood and sunglasses and what looked like trousers but also a skirt. I couldn't <laughs> quite work out the outfit. And he was limbering up on this kind of railing. And he goes, all right, Arsenal. <laughs> and I thought it, maybe it's a Liverpool fan just having a little pop about the night before's match. And as I, I said, all right, mate, nice bit of kit. <laughs> walked on with my dog and my daughter and then about 50 yards I thought oh shit that was Liam Gallagher (laughs) (laughs) that was absolutely definitely Liam Gallagher, no one else wears those sunglasses and that sort of thing but he didn't didn't chase me down and uh, finish me off in front of my child
0: (laughs) it's got got some standards (laughs) the tweet was enough I think once he he'd done it I think this the kiss at the end it's like I've got out of my system <laughs> yeah, and we're friends the kiss says we're friends again <laughs> as long as you fuck off to another country I mean that's <laughs> not country a country well, I mean I imagine that he thought that that was about as hard as
2: abuse as you can dish out on Twitter and he is sorely mistaken because <laughs> many of his compatriots from Manchester have absolutely outdone him in recent weeks
0: <laughs> it's a wonderful town I love it up there yeah of course, of course. Um, well, while we're on, that, some other stories I'd like to hear about from your real life. Uh, yeah. um, I, I saw something about you setting off Neil Kinnock's burglar alarm.
2: Oh, yes, that's true.
0: Is that true? It's true. I have to
2: apologise for my croakiness, because I have a bit, I'm a bit chesty and I had COVID, and uh, yeah. discovered, having not had COVID all the time, and thought I was immune, and, I was, and then when it got me, it proper took me out. So I'm a little bit weird, but I'm not contagious. Front row, I'm not contagious. So I'm clear, but yes, I knew uh, uh, Glennis Kinnock because I did a chat show with Ruby Wax. Ruby Wax used to do a chat show where you'd sit and have dinner, basically, and uh, Anna Massey was on, and uh, Glennis, and me, and Ruby, and I really liked Glennis a lot. She was brilliant. She was a very forthright, very smart, very intelligent, great company likes a beer, good fun, you know. She's not well at the moment, and it's very sad. You know, Neil's having to sort of look after her. And towards the end of their days, as it were. So, I and I've... But I was very, very fond of her. And we went to a restaurant, and Ruby Wax was good friends with Alan Rickman, and Alan Rickman sitting next to me, and I had this absolutely amazing night. You know, sometimes when you do this job, most of the time you have a normal day, see your normal people, do your normal work. And sometimes, you're, you are know, with Alan Rickman and Glenis Kinnock and... And it was amazing. So I, and I, and I, we got on well. And I did a show in the West End in 1998, a couple of weeks of stand-up. And I invited them. They, they said, if you're ever doing a show, let us know. And I invited them to come. And they came to the show. And uh, he'd been to see Wales play rugby at Wembley, because they didn't have a home stadium at the time, because they were building it. And then he I came to see my show. And then we went to a restaurant afterwards. And we had a big meal. And it was a good laugh. And he goes at the end of it, he goes, I've had a great day. And I'm really sort of, I'm very, I'm very fond and full of admiration for both of them. And then, a couple of years later, I was going over to Belgium, because I'm a big football fan, and England were playing Germany. And I got tickets, and I had nowhere to stay. And I rang there off, they were both in Brussels at the time. He was an EU commissioner, and she was an MEP And I rang their office saying, I can't get a hotel room. Surely, is there somebody there who can pull a string and recommend a hotel where there's a room? And the message came back almost immediately stay at our house. And I, I said, Really? And I said, Yeah, we're not there. Help yourself. There's wine in the fridge in the basement. And we said, all right, well, you'll, get, you'll come into such and such an address, and we'll, we'll get, we'll, someone will take you around there, and you go around there, and they say, right, now this is the security code. Now this is important. This is not an ordinary burger alarm. If this goes off, shit hits the fan. <laughs> 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 so I was with my mate, Jez, and we said, no, he's got to remember this number. We're going, okay. And then, if it, if it goes off, and the phone will ring and you have to say, and I think it was Maison de la Bouche, but it can't have been. But, <laughs> okay? And we went, yeah. Then we get on the train to Charleroi in Belgium. And on the way, it's a pack train. All we, People are ringing up saying, Are you all right? It's all over the news. Are you, are you there? Are you, are you in the water cannon? Are you in trouble? And then we felt like we were on a troop train. And there was terrible, badly, badly behaved supporters who uh, I uh, do not condone. And there was a lot of mess and several water cannons. But we went in the ground, and England won one-nil. David Beckham made a brilliant cross for Shearer, I think it was. And everyone's digging the Damn Busters theme and doing Lancaster bombers and really making absolute idiots themselves. But at the same time, having one of the best nights of their lives. And then we got back to the house and we set the burglar alarm off. And we were quite pissed and really tired and just kept keying in the wrong number. And this, wasn't like, this was the loudest sound I've ever heard. It, I felt nauseous. It felt like it was reverberating in your... Inte- like, eventually, if you stayed there long enough, you would pass out from the sound of it. It was like something from The Prisoner. And the phone rang, and Jez went, My on boost! And it, whatever he said, convinced them, and it stopped. And then we watched the highlights. <laughs> But, oh, what a wonderful night.
0: I been, you would have been taken out by the SAS or something. Armed,
2: armed police would have yeah. come. Yeah. Without a shadow of a doubt. And we just looked like two football fans <laughs> who'd broken in.
1: <laughs> no, we didn't, neither of us had a word of French or Flemish. <laughs> Say hello to a new era of mental health care. And sign up today at cerebral.com/slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company. They offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.
0: And uh, is it true? This might not be true. I think it is. I think I remember this. I think it is true. Did you pay £30,000 to buy the original Big Brother diary room chair? Yes. Do you regret that decision I, I, in hindsight? Um, a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, okay. <laughs> It was for charity, right? It was for charity. It was for charity. Yeah. <laughs>
2: it was for three charities for homeless people and they did an auction of everything in the house um, to raise money for homeless charities because it was a house and, you know, it was the first series and it was the purple chair and what was happening was the son were bidding for the chair because they had a deal with Nasty Nick right. and they wanted the chair and the producers was, knew that I was bidding and they called up and said, we do not want the sun to have this. Right? <laughs> and they've bid 30 grand. Could you bid 30 grand and 1p? <laughs> and I, was, I had made quite a lot of money in the, in the previous couple of years. I'd done adverts for Abbey National. I'd always felt slightly guilty about taking this shilling and selling out. And I did get a little bit of stick from people, you know old friends of mine like Mark Steele who made a few <laughs> eye-rolly, sarcastic <laughs> remarks, quite rightly. But it was too much to turn down. Uh, LAUGHTER I just didn't have the backbone to walk away. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I gave some of it to this auction to yeah. assuage my, some of my guilt. And I've still got the chair. I've still got it at home. And then re- recently, well, a couple of years, well, I say recently, before the pandemic, Somerset House did an exhibition of artefacts from television. And, right. And it was, they said, can we borrow it? And I just thought they were going to say,
0: can we buy it? <laughs> Five hundred quid, it's yours. <laughs> <laughs> I think it might have depreciated. I think it might not be worth thirty grand. Well
2: the really funny thing about it, it was quite a nice chair, it's one of those egg chairs. And they were quite rare at the time. And to buy one was about two and a half grand or quite yeah. fancy. Uh, and I actually did actually like the chair. <laughs> and, and then one day, Foxton's had a massive refit and every branch of Foxton's in London had about 20 of these poxy chairs in there. So overnight, it went from this you know, iconic bit of furniture into a Foxton's chair. <laughs> Embarrassing.
0: Never mind. Um, let's talk about... Ta- look, for the second week in a row, we have uh, a Taskmaster... Yes. Task a a Taskmaster TV detective on. <laughs> Uh, how did you enjoy your time uh, in the Taskmaster house? Well, I did enjoy it. I mean, I I, I didn't do that well. I mean,
2: <laughs> <laughs> some of them. Sometimes you think you've done well and then you haven't, and some and sometimes the opposite. But it was it's good fun, and I think it's quite important to try your best with the tasks. Yeah, and I, I did think. try my best, and I, sometimes. But I was evident when when they played it back in the studio when you sit together, as you know, and and Alex and, and Greg are there, and you know, they start taking the piss out of you. <laughs> and you, you realise, when you see yourself, it's never pleasant to see yourself, <laughs> ever. I mean, whoever you are, you know, when you see yourself in your own holiday snaps, or you know, if you catch a sight of yourself, like this? If you catch sight of yourself in a shop window as you walk past, and go, oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> <for God. laughs> <laughs> and so I was like, oh, no, look at this idiot. But I can honestly say I've never laughed so much in the studio in my life as I did on those recordings. You do five days, because it's a ten-show series, so two shows a day for five days, and everything that Greg and Alex say is funny. Everything that everybody said was funny. A really nice bunch of people, Victoria, Connor, Mitchell I know quite well, Desiree Birch, who I know. Yeah. Uh, Gus Kahn, who I'd never met. and Morgana Robinson, who I'd never met. But we really got on. Everyone got on. And it was hysterically funny. And people actually came to me in the, in the break saying, are you all right? Because I was <laughs> really <laughs> laughing. So I was glad I did it. I was uh, apprehensive about being made a fool of, you know. But they don't want to make a fool
0: of you. No. you they know you will do that anyway. <laughs> 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 and luckily you're on with Victoria and Mitchell, who couldn't <laughs> ride a bicycle. So, you know, it was... <laughs> Who learned to ride a bicycle on air. On there! <laughs> oh, there. <laughs> <laughs> but everybody
2: said, you know, um, Victoria consulted David Baddiel and I consulted Lou Sanders and, and Joe Brown, the people who've been on, and they all said, just got to go on. It's so much fun. Yeah,
0: it really is fun. So uh, when we... Our studios were right right after the first lockdown, so it was literally the first time any of us had been out of the house for four or five months in July. And the first day, we just... Well, we... Just like, if you watch it, people say, were well, you... We were all crying because Greg was too rude. <laughs> we all just got tears down our face, and we just—I just cried. Yeah, with really, laughter all really day. It's really, really funny. It's hard it's just, to explain, but it's yeah. so, so funny. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> um, good. Uh, and, um, i am surprised uh, out of all your things, and you may be surprised about this as well. Uh, there's obviously some big, big things that succeeded and did many, many series, and we'll get on to those perhaps. But I thought Whites was a was a very good series, and you only did one series of that. Is yeah. that is, was that them or you? Was it
2: rankles, Richard. It yeah. does rankle that. Um, whites was a sitcom we did for BBC Two in 2010, and it, and it's called Whites, which is a reference to chef's whites because it's set in a restaurant, and I play a guy who kind of wanna be celebrity. Chef who's now on the way down, too lazy and conceited to do any work, so puts it all onto his sous chef who's very put upon, and there's a really lippy chef in the, and then he's flirting with their restaurant manager. Great characters and relationships. And one of the reasons why it worked was because it was written by Matt King and Ollie Lansley, and Matt King used to be his chef. So we had lots of people who worked in restaurants especially on social media, saying, this is bang on. This is exactly <laughs> it. And it, it was terrifically good. I was very proud of it. The ensemble cast, Izzy Sooty played a waitress, hysterically funny. And we all loved making it, and we were ready for season two, and it just didn't happen. There were several shows in the mix, and, and I felt... I remember at the time, there was a show called Episodes, uh, which was written by a couple of American writers and had Matt LeBlanc in, and had a bit of co-production money from the States... And that got recommissioned and I felt, which is fine, you know, not, not knocking that show, it went to several series, it was good. But I did feel slightly that the BBC ought to be back in Ollie and Matt as yeah. two writers who'd not worked together before, not had anything on before, young English writers, you know, state broadcaster, come on back and support them, give them another series. Yeah. Um, they had a lot of scripts ready. And it got canned. And of all that's what actually really, that is the biggest disappointment right. in my whole career that we didn't get to do more of those. But I'm very, very proud of the ones there are. And you do still get people, because it crops up now and then. You yeah. know, it'll appear on one of the streaming services. And, and people will say to me, Any more whites? People always assume because I'm the lead actor and things, <laughs> it's up to me. Yeah. You know, and I, did argue, and I tried to argue with the BBC, and my agent at the time was very bad-mannered, and he upset a lot of people. <laughs> I did say to them, can we talk about why you've done this? And they said, we'll have a meeting with you, uh, but not to discuss whites. We just want to reiterate our faith in your talent. Said, what, what, what are you on about? That isn't even English. And I said, Matt, and it's not just me, it's Matt and Ollie have written the thing, you yeah. know. They said, well, maybe they could write something else for you. I you would understand. You must understand. It's a four-year process from the first taster, 10-minute taster that they made that they did themselves, right. to getting a table read, to getting a pilot, to writing six scripts, to getting the thing on air. It's four years of development. And you get it on, and then you can it, and then you say to them, why don't you come up with something else? <laughs> it's Kafkaesque. Yeah. It was very upsetting. And at yeah. the time, actually... Uh, QI had just had a little period on BBC One. They tried us on BBC One, Between the Soaps, uh, and it didn't go well. (laughs) Our our audience couldn't find us, and the new audience did not know what the fuck was going on. (laughs) Stephen Fry was coming out with all this stuff. (laughs) So they said, we're going to relaunch it on BBC Two. Oh, yeah, whatever. Spin it however you want. This is a balls-up, right? (laughs) We're going back on BBC Two, and I was slightly concerned that maybe, maybe White didn't make it because QI was coming back to BBC Two. Maybe they thought, we don't want him in two shows. Well, we'll commission it. I don't know. I just yeah. couldn't understand the, the process because you weren't told what the process no. was. And and then I said to John Lloyd, oh, I don't know if I should do QI anymore because I really like acting, and if I, I maybe if I'm just too ubiquitous and too much on QI all the time, how can anyone cast me in anything? Everyone just said, I was like, bloke off QI. And uh, so he started looking for someone to replace me. <laughs> 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 we've well, been friends for years. That was the fun... I met John Lloyd making the ads for the Abbey National. Oh, right. He directed all the ads. So I was quite conflicted about taking a shilling and making adverts. Actually, John made all those ads, and we became quite good friends. And while we were doing that, he said, I've had an idea for a, a panel show. Where you get points for being interesting, you don't have to get the questions right. You just get points if you're interesting. Mm-hmm. What do you think? I said it sounds because what I liked about panel shows was all the off the cuff yeah. stuff. You know, not the scripted jokes that you went in prepared with, but the bands, the off the cuff. And uh, I said, he said, you're the only person who thinks it's a good idea. <laughs> 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 Will you do the pilot? <laughs> so I said, absolutely, I'll do the pilot. And uh, the pilot had. Um, Isard Eddie in it, right. and uh, <laughs> Bill Bailey, who who is my, my good friend, who I introduced John to. he's got a Bill on; he's brilliant. Yeah. And uh, Kit Haskin Harvey from *Kit and the Widow*, very funny. And, Steve, and John wrote the entire script, and that was in two thousand and two. So right. yeah, we started doing that, and I'm still doing that. And I really am really. F- I, I'm an apologist for being so ubiquitous and on so many, so much, but. You know, now I've got
0: three kids, so that's. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's got. There's. It's sort of. A, it's. Is it, is it a, a? I mean, I know it's a good thing, and a QI is a great show. But to be on, on one show for twenty years, like it's, there aren't many people who've done. That. I guess. Have I got news for you? I guess uh, Paul and Ian have been doing that for maybe Even thirty longer. years. Yeah, <laughs> thirty years. Yeah. You know, it's kind of. A, it's. I think for a stand-up, it, it can sometimes just sort of. I think when Phil Jupitus was on, Buzzcocks. You know, it's very easy just to get your feet under the table and think, right? You know, I don't. You know, I don't. Phil sort of stopped doing stand up for a bit, and then he came back to it when he stopped. I know you've you've been doing stand up, but is it is it sometimes? You know, is it sometimes thinking maybe I should move on and I'm away from this, or is it just? Is it, yeah, you do think. That.
2: Yeah. I mean, you think that frequently, and you don't always enjoy. People say oh, that looks like a right laugh. That must be, be, be a right laugh. And then, yeah, but you see the half an hour. Yeah. It's not always a laugh, obviously. Some of the stuff I'm not interested in and I've really had to fake a lot of interest in things. And, you, and I have no idea what's going on. I don't understand the question. I've got no idea what the answer is. And I'm spending the entire time in the dark trying to think of something funny. It's fr- frankly, Richard, it's exhausting. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm not always successful and... and so it's it's a mixed blessing, but in the end, I sit in the chair and think if if I said I'm leaving, the queue to sit here would go round the block. Yeah. You know, it's a very privileged position to be in, and and the thing is, we're doing the alphabet, right? We're doing yeah. the. It's <laughs> <laughs> John's master plan. <laughs> series one was A, and he, and we're so close to twenty six series now. <laughs> I really now feel like I can't leave, but I mean, at the same time I've always thought, I mean, I don't know what you feel, the, the slight sense of imposter syndrome, you're always thinking someone's going to tap you on the shoulder and say, that's enough now, you yeah. know, we're going to try Josh Winnickham <laughs> next year, or, <laughs>
0: But them, it is you know, you know. it 's a, a testament that that hasn 't happened i don 't think that would happen with this, but it is it's sort it is quite unusual you know even with Buzzcocks, they were they were pushing people in and out, and some people were leaving, and some people were were being pushed out so it's It is sort of amazing you know and it, I can absolutely i 'm not saying you 're crazy for doing it because it 's quite the opposite because it 's a great show, but you know Stephen Fry was on i think just after on this just after he decided to stop doing it, and he was talking about the how frustrated he was getting obviously with doing the Doing QI well, up, the difficult,
2: know? the problem with it was, and I don't want to come, you know, we always sound daft because we're lucky to do the job we do and we get well paid and all the rest of it. But the problem was they'd started to started make us do three records in a 24 hour period. We used to go meet up, go in the green room. Stephen would be, would be a welcoming host to everyone. A lot of chat and banter, go in the studio, do some dummy questions. People, if they wanted a gin and tonic or whatever, would have one. And there was a nice, jolly atmosphere. And there'd be a warm-up guy on stage doing 20 minutes of funny stand-up. The audience, 650 people. Stephen would bring you on one at a time. You'd do the show, then you'd go to the bar. It was really fun. Yeah. And the shows were great. And then one day they said, we want to do two in a day. And we thought, do you? Oh, God, that's... F- that's going to be four and a half, sometimes five hours sitting there having no idea what's happening or what you're (laughs) going to say. And we're doing one the night before. So if you do three in that time, by the third show, your eyes are starting to close and you keep thinking of hilarious callbacks to things that happened yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) And it's a little bit of an endurance test. It does take the edge of a little bit of the... But the thing is, if you do that once and no one dies... I think we've saved that amount of money. Yeah, it's all about the budget, and the budget keeps getting cut and cut and cut and cut and cut. And then though I get well paid, my money's been the same. It's the same in 2022 as it was in 2010. Right. You know, it's exactly the same. Yeah. And and that's it's been constricted and it's constricted and pushed and pushed and pushed. And and I think in the end, I think Stephen just found it a bit too much.
0: Yeah.
2: You know, I mean, I know that he's he was conflicted about leaving. I miss him very much. You know. I love him to bits, but he—I totally got it. That he, yeah, you know, it's
0: you know, but it's an it's an interesting. I think it's a stand-up, and I think you know, I, I remember when I started doing stand-up, you'd you'd got to that point where you were, or you know, you'd won the time-out new comedian or something, and you, and you you were up there, and you know, you were you're a great stand-up, and you have carried on doing stand-up all that time. It's that it's that trade-off, isn't it, between. You know, doing doing the work. You like I think acting in a way is it takes you away further from stand-off. acting. Takes you away further. Yeah. it definitely does.
2: You, if you do five months on a shoot. You are knackered at the end of it. and you know, you're know not. I think 90 hours a week might be too much. I don't know, what do you... <laughs> <laughs> stop moaning, yeah. you. Oh, well, stop moaning. But you can't then, to get back in to stand up and come up with new material, you can't sta- stand up, as you know. You have to be gigging all the time. You have to be constantly... I don't write my material and my material is come... I jot notes down and go on and ad-lib and talk through it until stuff emerges. I can't... Come up with material without gigging, and I couldn't gig because I was working. And also, I had a couple of gigs where I went to the comedy store and I was getting a bit of Jonathan Creek, this, and Caroline Quentin, something else, and Happy <laughs> National, your twat, and you know. <laughs> and I was trying to, you know, beat a riff off the cuff, and I, and I left. And all the comedians in the dressing room were thinking, Yeah, he's died on his ass, flash cunt. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't go back there for 10 years. Right. And actually, that really upset me because I loved it. That was my first love. That's when people say, what's your job? I I'm a stand-up comedian. That's my job. If everything else stops, which I've been expecting to happen for about 20 years, that's (laughs) what I would do. I'd be on a stage just like this, entertaining an an audience as best I could, just like this. You know, that's my job. And I didn't do it for 10 years, and I got pushed back into it by a friend of mine called Marnie Fowlis, who's a promoter in Australia, and we were going to Australia to do QI Live. So off we go to do that, and she said, "Why are you here? Why don't just do some gigs? You should do gigs. You're good at stand up, but you haven't done it for ten years. What's going on?" I said, "I don't know. We do QI. That's a live audience, so I kind of." She goes, "No, no, 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 no. This is ridiculous. You've got to get back into it." And she just basically bullied me like she's got three. She's got three sons, and I've seen the way she talks to them, and I just <laughs> she talked to me exactly like that. <laughs> get off your ass and do something about it, you know. And yeah. I needed that, and i and that was in 2011 and. And that tour was, went amazingly well. And I, When you haven't got an act as a stand-up, you always think you'll never think of another funny thing. You just think there's no... You look at old routines that you enjoy doing, I'll never think of another routine like that. But you do, you know, you do if you, if you apply yourself, if you gig and find little venues, and, and that's what I did. So then I toured for about five years solid and and now i try and do like i'm doing one in canterbury next month i'm doing one in Bristol in june just try and have a gig every now and then to yeah keep my hand in
0: well it's good you know i'm glad that you you are doing doing stand-up again because it's um you know you you were you are and were fantastic at stand-up so that's that's fantastic um i want to say as well that you um i've just been listening to your audio book uh, which we don't need to go into great detail with now and we, we can if you like uh, which is just ignore him which is um an absolutely amazing piece of work Alan. i have to say it's beautifully Thank written you. i mean it's about your you know very troubled and sad very sad childhood really um and it's you know it's 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 quite difficult to listen to because there's a, there's a lot of Uh, you know it's it's very honest and and you've you've had to go through a a lot of stuff not only losing your losing your mum which would would be uh, bad enough but that all the stuff that comes after that as well why did you want to why did you want to write that book because it is you know it's 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 a it's there's funny bits in the book but it's pretty serious stuff
2: It is, yeah. I couldn't carry it around any longer, really. Yeah. Um, the story where I had this re- relationship with my father—it was kind of uh, traumatic events. I mean, it's quite publicised by now what went on, and I—I I didn't want to write a vengeful book. I didn't want to get my own back. I didn't want, and I wanted to tell the truth, and I wanted to get it out of me because every time I thought about writing anything, this this stuff from my child would keep coming up and block block me up almost. And I'd never been able to address any of it at all in stand-up. Stand-up was always a kind of a little bit skin deep. And because I never really went away as a comedian and tried to write monologues and really think, what do I, what do I want to say on this subject? I would just write down things I thought were funny, say them to an audience. If they laughed, I'd say them again. And it never really went further than that. Yeah. You know, it was an entertainment. It was fun. And this, to get to really deep to go really, there's a lovely line that uh, Seamus Heaney talks about uh, dipping a bucket through the skin and pulling, you know, like a bucket for a well mm-hmm. into your, and then pulling it up and that kind of imagery of what's really there and I did an MA writing course and, uh, at Goldsmiths College and it was the best decision I've made because it gave me an opportunity to try and write about these things with my father and Liz my mum and and no one, no one was going to read them apart from the people on that course. You know, It was a safe space in which everyone was very respectful and very eternally grateful for. Yeah. And I worked really hard and really got a lot out of that. And then at the end, it was a decision whether to publish or not. And by this time, the, the police were interviewing my father and uh, was trying to make some headway with it, which, as you'd find if you read the book, a mixed outcome. Yeah. Um, but I have got it. Out and I, did, I wrote the best sentences and the best paragraphs I could manage. I tried to make something worthwhile out of it. We had a brilliant um, short story writer, well, also a novelist, called Claire Keegan, who came to our college and talked to us one day. And she said to us, you need to go towards the loss. And uh, everyone in the room immediately knew what she meant, because the loss... Is different for each person, you know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and she said, I know writers. So they say, oh, I love writing. It pours out of me. I write thousands of words. And, and she said, I think they may be a lost cause. <laughs> you know. If, you, if it's easy, you're not doing it properly. It's like anything. Yeah. And she said, you've got to go towards the lost. My tutor said to me, write the things that make you cry. Write things as if no one's going to read it. You know, no one's over your shoulder. You have to write that and then see where you, what comes out. And then I wrote a book that makes absolutely everybody cry the right <laughs> time. But I try to keep humour there. And I try to be true to self. And I try and I... It's, writing a memoir is hard enough. Um, because it's hard to remember anything from yesterday, right? It's hard yeah. to remember what you have for breakfast. Yeah. It's a really strange process. Yeah. And there were some things that I was pretty clear had happened. And some things where I wasn't sure of the order. And So it was, it was a hell of a lot of work. But I'm probably, yeah, I'm pleased it, I did
0: it. I mean, you know, it's 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 beautifully written. It's 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 very moving. And do you th- I mean, I think like also explains so much about you. And I know you've had bad press over certain instances in your in your adult life. And did were you ever you know when those things were going on? Did you want to say look, it, it, this might be a reason that there's some anger in me, or that there's you know because the the book is be- I think it's very. There's moments where you let the anger out, right? But it's but it's it's very measured, and I think the 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 reader or the listener, in my case, was listening to the audio but is angry on your behalf, right? I mean, I, I think even just um, not being told that your mother was ill, and then your your dad not telling your mum she was ill, her not knowing, but mm-hmm. what just that putting a child through that makes me, so, as a dad, makes me so angry. Yeah. Well, a um, big
2: prompt, actually, you asked me what prompted me to write the book, and, and I've got two sons now. My daughter's 12, my sons are 10 and 6. My son, my youngest now, is nearly to the day, the age I was, when my mum died. Yeah. And the idea that if Katie got, you know, God forbid, I'm not, I'm not a God-fearing person, but you know what I mean. <laughs> if, if, if she should die from leukaemia suddenly... And the idea that we would not have a grave, somewhere you can go, Mm -hmm. the idea that you wouldn't talk about her, then I I know that Rio Rio Ferdinand, uh, as you may know, uh, lost his wife, his mother of his three kids. And they had a thing... um, called a memory jar, and the, and the, and you could just write any memory of mum down and pop it in the jar. And then one, if you wanted to, any time you wanted to, you could go to the jar. I mm-hmm. thought that was a beautiful idea. I yeah. really found that profoundly moving. And I, of course, you would do... I remember when Jay Goody died. You know, I mean, it, that was so unbearably sad but she had two small boys and she made a great effort to write things down for them make little videos for them try and have you know try something because my mum was not given the chance to do that because she wasn't told she was terminally ill she was told she was getting better Mm -hmm. and then her ashes were buried in an unmarked grave and she was never spoken about again and, and that isn't even the worst thing that happened. No, I know. But so, you
0: know, it's it's bad enough, and it's it's, it's pretty it makes pl- me pretty cross. You know? and to put on you as a six, you know, you weren't allowed to tell your sister about. It. You know, it's just absolutely, and yeah, this is nowhere near the worst thing in the <laughs> book. And I'm absolutely furious just about that. So it's you know, it's it's amazing to to see it, but I think also it sort of ex- it explains the some of the stuff about you that. You know, there's, there's Some of my worst it. mistakes. <laughs> well, you know, so, the, yeah. we all make mistakes, and and and, and mm. certainly the public eye people make mistakes. Do you think, you know, Robin Ince has this, you know, theory in his book about comedians being having, you know, loss in their childhood or, or having the. Bad, do you think that? Do you think you would have gone towards comedy regardless, or was comedy something that gave you sort of solace from this? I really find it a difficult question. Lots of people ask
2: me, and all I can say is my brother and sister are not comedians. (laughs) uh, There was something about comedy that I loved. I just love laughing. I love comedy. I love comedians. I love sitcoms. You know, I still do. And that's my favourite thing. Uh, A funny person is just my favourite, favourite thing. I like it like everybody else. When a new comedian appears or a new show appears. and And I love it. And I wanted to do it. Yeah. And, and I wanted to do it, well, but my problem was I needed the audience I needed the love of the audience, I needed that appreciation um, and it was actually um, Izard Eddie, funny enough who he lost his mum when he was six yeah and uh, and we talked about it because we were really contemporaries. you know we started pretty much the same week doing stand up. And and he said the, the love of the audience replaces the love of your mother that you've lost. It's as simple as that. It's just, you don't have to analyse it any. And I thought nonsense. <laughs> uh, but he was right. It was absolutely right because no one will ever give you the unconditional love that a mother will give you. No one will ever speak to you. I can't remember the sound of a voice. I can't remember a face. You know, it's really difficult. But an audience, will, you can talk and they will laugh. And then, and then the really hard thing is when, when the show finishes, they all piss off. <laughs> 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 and then you start drinking and getting into fights. Yeah. You know, or <laughs> well, Eddie doesn't. Eddie has his own things, but that's what I do. <laughs> 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 and, and losing fights, badly.
0: <laughs> well, it's, I, I, I absolutely recommend the book. It's, it's, it is beautiful, even though it's. Um, uh, it's you know it's 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 traumatic to read. So you know the the it's it's hard to imagine uh, uh, how it was to go through it. But well done for for writing the book because it's, uh, it's I think I think it's re- you know it is really great to see people whatever the experience to talk about stuff as well because I think people don't talk about any of those well,
2: any you know, of the things it covers. A lot said about um, Twitter and you can like you can get abuse from uh, great rock stars and you can get <laughs> abuse from ordinary people. You can read some awful things. People say terrible things to you. But when I wrote my book, I went back onto Twitter and, uh, and lots and lots and lots of people have been in touch and lots of people have said they'd had similar experiences mm. and lots of people have said, your book's helped me or spoke to me and that, and that means a huge amount to me. That makes it worth it.
0: And it's, and it's so much of the, of, you know, I think just the, the years we grew up and the, and the way the world was and the way men were and the way you know, people didn't discuss their feelings and, you know, Mm. it's so 70s and 80s, it is, you know, there was something at the heart of society that was... Don't cry,
2: never, ever cry.
0: So even with nice (laughs) families, which I think I was, you know, I I don't have any, apart from my dad being my headmaster, which may be my trauma, (laughs) I don't have any I don't have any, you know, I don't have any proper trauma like that, but it's, but you know, it really, you know, it, it was a really fucked up fucks up time and so you know it, it, if we can I, th- I think if we can for the next generation of, I think of men as well especially because it's you know I think it, it is that inability to cope yeah. with feelings that, that sends men into terrible horrible insane oh, places
2: yeah well and we could you know perhaps we shouldn't because it's a comedy podcast <laughs> I can't have a good time. but I mean you know I mean there are a lot of suicides aren't yeah. there so yeah. but, you know it is important you're yeah. right you're right
0: but thank you for writing it and it's, uh, it's, it is well worth your time if, if you uh, want to pick that up if you haven't heard it already um, let's talk about Jonathan Creek hooray Yay! that was fun that was I'm fun um, I, I've watched all of them quite recently maybe maybe just before lockdown because it was all on Netflix I don't know if it still is but I watched the whole thing start to finish it is, it is it's like death in paradise but like really good <laughs> <laughs> Like is the same. It is. It's weirdly similar in that it's you know it, why don't do a convoluted difficult crime because Jonathan Creek will solve it. <laughs> Just stab someone and run away because he won't be bothered about that. But it's. I mean, the writing in it is obviously um, a, a big part of it. Uh, David Renwick. Mm. Uh, the, in, I mean, it, it was. It's interesting to watch it because it, it's. It must have been so hard for him to keep up the the quality of it and the and the intricacy of the. I don't know if he thought he would do, do as many series as he did. But it, it's a phenomenally written thing, first of all. He right? finds it incredibly hard.
2: Yeah, it must be. And he's the real... He said to me once, I'm not a glass half-empty person. <laughs> I don't have a glass. <laughs> and he used to, he's always on set. And, and he always looks at, you, looks at us all as if to say, I can't believe these people aren't going to fuck this up completely. <laughs> um, but he, he's a really, really brilliant, brilliantly clever right yeah. extraordinarily clever and the show's full of references and allusions to various things in comedy but also in magic and in similar types of show is a big influence of course it's Sherlock Holmes mm-hmm. and um the lock room mystery and making sure that there's a kind of lineage that you're part of so it's this is what makes it last really because mm-hmm. it's uh, it's the ideas are kind of timeless and and, and so people are still coming across it. And, and they don't really realise quite how funny it is. I mean, I just learned the lines. I learned the lines to the absolute full stop. David is extremely particular. And you learn every single syllable and you don't change a word. And, and in the later years, he started to direct them and he would storyboard them. He's quite a good cartoonist. And in one of the storyboard frames, there's There Am I in the duffel coat. Um, arms folded looking out the window. When we came to the shot, I had my hands in my pockets and he came over and said, do you suppose you might fold your arms? (laughs) (laughs) And he pointed to the drawing. I said, I can fold my arms, David, if you like. (laughs) Um, So he's very, very particular and on top of all of it and on top of the edit and uh, full of tricks. So uh, he would write, I remember in one episode he wrote an elephant's funeral and there was an elephant that was in a, in a show, in a kind of new comedy show, magic show, and it died in the theatre. And he wrote the elephant's funeral. And uh, Verity Lambert was our producer. Said, "We're never going to be. We're never going to get six elephants <laughs> nose to tail walking through London." Okay. <laughs> All right, I'll lose the elephant's funeral then. I'm oh, fine. Through a big huff. <laughs> Knowing that that was never going to get made, but in, in so doing, able to salvage another scene that was also a bit pricey. Well, you've ruined the elephant thing, so let me have this. You know? In the end, we didn't even have one elephant, we just had the sound of an elephant trumpeting in the wing, and then it cut to a shot of me and, and the other actor whose name's that, I can't remember now, but. And he's going, he's having a little drink, and he's going, it's what she would have wanted. She loved the theatre. Very, very funny. You know.
0: But it was, I think, you know, obviously, like A, you it was you all the way through, I don't, and I can't imagine any, I can't imagine him going, right. We're gonna, you know, you don't want to do it. We'll carry on the the series. Um, I think, but I think the relationship, especially with you and Caroline Quentin, I think was just was was phenomenal. Right, that was it was there was there was something just the chemistry there was 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 great.
2: Yeah. Well, again, it's all written. Yeah, It's all written there, you know. He yeah. wrote the part of Maddie for Caroline. He went to Caroline. Caroline, at the time, was married to Paul Merton, and he went to their house for dinner, and, and she, she's quite a good cook, Caroline, but it's, it was pretty chaotic, and <laughs> things were getting burned, and she's talking all the time. And he wrote a scene that doing that in one yep. of the episodes, and he always wanted Caroline to do it, and he wanted Nicholas Lyndhurst to do <laughs> Jonathan Creek, and he didn't want to do Jonathan Creek because... They'd just finished Fools and Horses and David Jason was doing Frost. And he thought, I better not do a detective thing. I'll do Goodnight, Sweetheart. Yeah.
0: So imagine if imagine if that had been the other way around. <laughs> <laughs> so that was you know, that was one hurdle out of the way.
2: <laughs> then Hugh Laurie was said yes. Hugh Laurie was right. gonna do it. And then he got cold feet and changed his mind for didn't want to do it, so then they started auditioning people, and they auditioned at 38, right. uh, 38 white men. Obviously, <laughs> it was the nineties. Um, <laughs> the Jonathan Creek pilot was five white men. The first <laughs> ten years of Jonathan Creek was about 600 white men. I mean, it really was. Yeah. I said, you know, let's not pretend we didn't benefit. Um, and <laughs> that well, was the 38th. Right. And uh, it, Susie Bellbin, who was the producer of the first series, had produced all of One Foot in the Grave, and she saw me doing a reading for a sitcom, and says, "Have you met David Renwick? Are you coming to the BBC Christmas party?" I said, "I've been to the BBC once in my life. I don't know <laughs> going to the Christmas party." And I turn, there's a black tie thing, so I had to hire a black tie suit and bow tie from a shopping. Stanford Hills, so I looked like I was going to a Jewish wedding, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and put on my own duffel coat and then ambled in, didn't know anyone. And David tells a story that as soon as he saw me looking like that, he thought, that's the bloke. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't fit in, looks a bit silly. And he, so then the, the first few scripts were already written and they'd been written some time before, but after that he started to write with my voice in his head and it became easier and easier to learn and the scenes between Maddie and Jonathan were so, so well written, you know, and it it was that we'd won the BAFTA in the first series uh, for Best Drama and we'd been made by the comedy department and the drama (laughs) department were livid. (laughs) And I thought, oh, this is what it's like. You know, you do a show, you win a BAFTA. And, uh, it's, yeah, it's the only BAFTA I've ever won.
0: <laughs> it still stands up, though, doesn't it? I mean, that's a lot of things from the 90s don't stand up, and, and, don't, and there's bits that make you a bit more uncomfortable. But I, don't think, I think Jonathan Creek is, is you know, it was, pretty, it was always pretty on the button, and it's, you know, it's not, there's nothing... Yeah, I thick. think so,
2: yeah. yeah. I think There was one storyline he had where there was a character as a police officer and and Maddie and Creek couldn't agree on whether this person was a man or a woman, oh, yeah. and uh, there's some quite funny stuff. about in the current climate, I don't yeah. think they'd show that episode. Okay. <laughs> People quite, um, you know.
0: Yeah, but uh, it was bloody funny <laughs> <laughs> at the time. <laughs> I think I remember, like from the, the from the old radio days, you'd, ri- you'd written and uh, your. Uh, had, you, had you written a sitcom about your life about, that, was, that was sort of you as the main character and was that for TV or radio? And they were arguing about you not being famous enough to play yourself. In, have I remembered that right? Oh, no,
2: there was a couple of things. I,
0: well, I wasn't
2: famous enough to be Jonathan Cree. Yeah. Uh, Alan Yentel was the controller of BBC One and he wasn't happy about it.
0: Right.
1: Head over to Hulu this March where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. <laughs> the acclaimed movie,
2: All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu.
1: So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Don't drink the milk. Don't drink the milk. Don't drink the milk. No, this isn't a podcast about milk. If you like historical intrigue, a bit of culture and a sprinkling of controversy, this one's for you. I'm Rachel Stewart and I'm travelling around Europe. Following the hidden history of everyday things as they're exported through time and around the world, by force, by chance or by choice. No need to pack your bags. Just subscribe to Don't Drink the Milk wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: He wanted Lindhurst. right? <laughs> but no, that's not quite what happened. I wrote, a, I had an idea for a sitcom where I was going to be basically be a comedian and have a couple of friends who got up to silly antics, and uh, we had it all worked out. And then Seinfeld started. Oh, right. <laughs> the exact show, done way better. Right. <laughs> uh, but what happened was the producer who had commissioned the script wanted didn't like wanted it to be different. Yeah. And, and I couldn't get on with her. And I said to the production company, we just can't agree on anything, and I really don't think I'm going to be able to work like this. I feel like I need somebody else to work, a script editor or something else. And they said, if you don't work with this person, uh, then you're in breach of contract. I said, what's that mean? Does that mean I'll be fired? And yes, that is exactly what it meant. <laughs> I was fired off my own show. So then the script started getting sent round to various comedians who were contemporaries of mine. Uh, It was called Just Shut Up. Just Shut Up by Alan Davis and a guy called Paul Wade, who was the co-writer on it. Um, And the main character suddenly wasn't Alan, he was called Adam. And people kept ringing me saying, I've just sent a script that you've written. (laughs) What's happened? I said, I've been fired. And that, that was a bit upsetting and I thought they were going to make a mess of it and they did it was terrible (laughs) and then I did a show on the radio on Radio 4 uh, in which I played a kind of pompous actor who was a bit above himself not a stretch and really loved doing that and and in the radio theatre not dissimilar to this room actually and Kevin Eldon was in it every week doing different voices and Alan Francis and Ronnie Ancona, and I loved doing that. And then they said, will you do a pilot for television? And all the same shit started happening. Right, the exact so. same bollocks, you know, the producer wants to change the script, the writer doesn't agree with me. And, and I said, why does this happen? What is wrong with people? <laughs> it was so much fun. A month ago, it was really fun. Yeah. I mean, and I asked John Lloyd to direct it, and he came in and said, this script is terrible. And I thought, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> and so I quit right. and I, and actually it wasn't until white 10 years later that I found myself in a sitcom that I always wanted to be in a sitcom yeah. and I and I kept blowing all my opportunities
0: but it's weird it's so you know it's so it you know especially when you say that there's 38 people who could have been Jonathan Creek and they choose the like the least well known person possibly it could have been you know the idea that Nicholas Linders could have been Jonathan Creek you know I'm, I'm imagining it and I'm loving it, but <laughs> <laughs> but it would have been a very different show. And yet, TV still does this thing where it's like you know they've got to, it's got to be a well-known person rather than the right person for the, for the role. Even to the extent of a show writ about written by someone about themselves and trying to cast someone else. It's you know yeah. it's just. It, well, after the, the only thing editor. about that,
2: when I got fired off my own sitcom, which was being made by Carlton Television, I was really unknown. And they didn't think it was only lost losing me. And they thought they'd get another actor. And, and, and my, co- my co-writer wasn't particularly loyal to me. <laughs> and uh, then, after that, I got cast as Jonathan Creek. And then Carlton came back to me and said, oh, uh, we've got another sitcom we'd like you to do. And they tried to crowbar me into something else that another actor had already been cast in. Right. And... Uh, I felt very uncomfortable about that situation and the producer and the director of that show told him to bugger off. So, well done then, yeah.
0: i say. <laughs> yeah, it's <that's> really interesting. <laughs> right, well, look, we've, we've, we've taken up nearly enough of your time. I think We haven't talked about loads of things but there, that was, that was going to be inevitable. I, I, I saw on Twitter that your uh, dog pooed outside uh, an oligarch's <laughs> mansion the other day. <laughs> Oh, well, well, done. well done for that. Yeah. It's true. It's
2: a wonderful moment. <laughs> I'm very proud.
0: And you know, I thought you suggested that, they, that they, they should put Ukrainian refugees up in that mansion, which seems like a good idea.
2: There are several mansions in Highgate yeah. at the top of Hampstead Heath, which are enormous. There's one called Wittenhurst. There's only Buckingham Palace, it's larger. I mean, right. I shit, you not. And in the deli, I'd walk my daughter to school, and in the deli where I get a cup of coffee in the morning, the, the woman who works in there told me that when they were doing it up, money laundering. Yeah. She said that they would, they were putting gold leaf on the on the swimming pool ceiling. I mean, they spent hundred million on this place and then round the corner there's beechwood house which is owned by an oligarch and beyond that is athlone house and athlone house is a huge mansion and you can see the tops of these buildings right across Hampstead heath they're incredible mansions built in the 19th century and athlone house used to be an raf convalescent hospital but also that was a little bit of a front because it was a place where they trained spies and they trained hundreds of spies and they trained hundreds of raf operatives in espionage tactics in that building. Right. So the idea now that it's owned by a, an oligarch feels a bit peculiar yeah. to me. And I, do, I would walk in my dog past these places and they really are enormous. So I put a tweet up saying, why don't we just seize these and repurpose them? And anyway, a week later, they were seized, <laughs> um, but they haven't been repurposed. <laughs> um, them, uh, but, uh, maybe, But I think they should be. And, and, and I'm sure I can't find anyone who disagrees that we could perhaps do a bit more more refugees from ukraine than we are doing here
0: yeah. <laughs> well it seems like it seems like a, a pretty good solution i have to say but uh, yeah. that's that's not am always going to ride with the government we have as <laughs> as we record this podcast but i was saying in january when shows that were going out in february was will boris johnson still be prime minister and saying yes he will and i think he will be when this goes out that's my
2: yeah I think you're right.
0: Yeah, that's my prediction. Um, so, is there anything coming up? More QI? Another series of QI? Uh, we have recorded another series. that will go out in the autumn. Anything? Anything else exciting that um, you're allowed to talk about?
2: Mm, uh, no, no. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I do a
2: show. I do a show for Comedy Central called Guessable. We're hoping to do more of those. I do. You know quite fun things that. But you no, know, nothing major. Oh, I did. I did. Do, I did an episode of McDonald and Dodds. Which, uh, if you like, Death in Paradise, you're going to love.
0: I will. I'll I'll check it out. I play an
2: eccentric professor.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's coming soon. Brilliant. (laughs) Uh, Well, look, it's fantastic to get you on after all this time, Alan. I can't believe you haven't been on before. Will you give a massive round of applause? The amazing Alan Davies. (laughs) Thank you very much for coming. Thank you, everyone, at Spread Theatre for having us. You have been listening to With me Richard Herring And my guest Alan Davies Thank you to Scant Regard They do the music You know that by now I'm indebted to my producer Ben Walker I'm also indebted to Chris Evans Not that one or that one Come on get real uh, And everyone at the Les Square Theatre Thank you for having us During this fabulous run You have all been marvellous And thank you to the whole crew Who do the filming and recording Even George The incompetent sound man Even he deserves a thank you uh, I would also like. <laughs> he just gave, gave waved merrily at me, very happily. I would also like to thank the following Kickstarter backers: Barry Sowell, or Sowley, Dan Powell, Kevin Franklin, John Sparks, Paul Levy, Jonathan Prytherch. Come on, Thomas Smith, Chris Notley, Scott Pezza, Joanna Seymour, Simon Howley, Louise Troest. <laughs> Trevor Hackett, George Alex, Crispin Lowe, Martin McDonald, Raymond Har- Halpeny, John Lynch, Hugh Lind-Edwards, Dink Taylor, Fraser Levy, John Walker, Jim Parkin, David Smith, Andrew Sandal, Ian Daly, Joel Gethin-Lewis, Benjamin Lowry, Mark David, Emma Poop Feeks, also Douglas Sinclair, Morgan Nash and Jervin Burnside who got their information in late but not too late to get their names in the credits this is a sky potato fuzz, go faster com production head to Herring.com slash gigs to find out about my edinburgh run and the forthcoming leicester square theater run and any other extra gigs we're doing like the Shed festival there's some of the phoenix they might have happened by now i don't know when this is going out now go away thank you everyone see you again bye Thank you very much for listening to my podcasts. Listen to some more. Tell your friends about these podcasts. We're in a very competitive market. It would be lovely to keep those downloads coming in. The more downloads we get, the more money we make and the more podcasts we can make for you. It's a beautiful symbiotic relationship. Come and see me on tour at richardherring.com. But otherwise, just, you know, go
1: outside. Enjoy the spring air. It's beautiful out there. I love you all. Goodbye.